A major victory for abortion rights in Ohio is direct democracy our secret weapon? Will Trump face even more charges in the January 6th case, and is he at risk of a gag order? We'll also check in with the 2024 campaigns where things continue to unravel for Ron DeSantis. Finally, new data suggests Americans are more polarized than ever. We'll dissect the data and help you bridge the divide. This is Majority 54. All right, Jason. Well, some great news. It seems like, you know, we've been on a run of some strong election results uh, over the past two years, going back to 2020. And uh, this one kind of snuck up on me, I have to be honest. So this is uh, the the posture of this is really fascinating. Do you fully understand the vote no, yes posture here? You want to explain to our audience? Sure. Yes. So that's why it snuck up on everybody is because I think if you're in Ohio, you really understand that there's the, you understood that there was this major vote coming up that really was about abortion, even though it was not about abortion, uh, which is sort of like we have that segment. It's political, but it doesn't seem political. This is like it was about abortion, but it doesn't uh, explicitly say it's about abortion. I think folks in Ohio got that clearly, which is why they voted the way they did. But the rest of the country, it snuck up on us. So basically, here's the deal. In Ohio, like a lot of other uh, states, particularly red states, where the legislature had passed uh, some form of um, a ban on abortion, you know, either an outright ban or a very restrictive ban. Sometimes they passed it prior to the Dobbs decisions, and, and then it just took effect as a result of the Dobbs decision. And sometimes they passed it after the Dobbs decision. But either way, in Ohio, it was on the books. And so Ohio is one of these states where uh, proponents of abortion rights were putting together a, uh, a ballot initiative on abortion. And everybody in the state knew it, that it was going to be yet another state that was going to vote, like Kansas did. Kansas was the first one to do it, that was going to have a vote on whether or not to put uh, a right to reproductive choice, reproductive freedom in the state constitution. So uh, in Ohio, Republicans saw this coming and they were like, this is going to be really bad for us. So they went ahead and put on the ballot something that would make it harder to change the state constitution by ballot referendum. Specifically, they were trying to make it where it was a 60% threshold. You had to get 60% of the vote in order to change the state constitution. So even though what people voted on was really just about changing the threshold of of constitutional amendments to the state constitution for uh, direct democracy votes. It was really about abortion because it was the entire reason that they were having the vote. As a side note, this is like a really interesting thing that has happened throughout our history. And I remember, I don't know if this happened for you, but like in law school, we would be reading a law or reading even some changes to the constitution and not understanding logically why they had happened and trying to assign logic to them until finally Mm. the professor or somebody in the know would be like, no, no, no. It was all about the political situation at the time. My favorite Mm. example is the entire reason Arnold Schwarzenegger or Jennifer Granholm can't run for president of the United States is because, uh, you know, they didn't want uh, Hamilton to be able to run for president of the United States. So they put an amendment in the constitution that said you had to be born in the United States. And that's really the only reason it was about Jefferson and uh, Hamilton, like beefing. It's not because everybody's like, you know, if you were born in Canada, I prefer a world where the GOP is run by Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, that's my point. So back to Ohio. Yeah. Yeah. But back to Ohio, that's what's going on. So, so a no vote on this was a vote to clear the way for a vote for abortion uh, rights later on. 
And, you know, this is in, in line with results we've seen around the country so far. So we've won similar ballot measures in Vermont and California, but also red states like Kansas and Kentucky. And mm-hmm. Arizona's up next. So there's this group in Arizona that's trying to get them on the ballot there. Uh, and this is a, a campaign that's run by Arizona for abortion access. And so it seems like this is the model, Jason, moving forward in a world where we can't rely on the Supreme Court or Congress to codify this for us. Yeah. In fact, um, just before we came on the air, I was sort of boning up on what's actually going on in Missouri with this stuff, which is it's very similar. There is a group out there uh, that is working to put abortion rights on the ballot. Missouri has a very restrictive law, much like what we've seen, you know, in Ohio, places like that. And so there's a group and Missouri, very red state, more red than Ohio. And there's a group that's targeted uh, the August or November elections of next year to say we're gonna we're gonna have a ballot referendum on this to change the state constitution. Two things are at play. One, clearly the Republican-controlled state legislature, in working with the Republican governor next year, is going to try to uh, put something on the ballot that would change. Uh, you know, first before the abortion vote would change what the. Uh, just like what Ohio is trying to do, would change um, the threshold you have to hit in order to change the state constitution. But even before that, uh, my successor as Secretary of State, Jay Ashcroft, is teaming up with the Attorney General of Missouri, uh, a guy named Andrew Bailey. And what they are doing is they are just bastardizing the process of ballot initiatives to try to keep abortion off the ballot. So the Secretary of State in Missouri is tasked with writing the short description that goes on the ballot. So somebody puts forward a ballot initiative, uh, either for you know initiative petition to change the law or a ballot referendum to change the state constitution. And it's super long, right? So the Secretary of State writes what it's going to be, and then it goes on the ballot. The only other piece of that process, and this is interesting, is that the state auditor uh, does a little blurb at the very bottom of that uh, that says what the cost to the state would be if this were to happen, right? So Jay Ashcroft, the Secretary of State, uh, just slow walked the whole thing. The court ended up forcing him to actually write a, a ballot, in a, uh, to write a description for the ballot because he wouldn't do it. And then when he finally did, it was too late. This was last time around uh, for the 2020 election or 2022 elections. Um, and then it was too late for them to actually go get the signatures. And they're trying to do that again, but it gets even worse this time. This time, in addition to the Secretary of State slow walking writing it, the Attorney General put forward a, a statement saying that it was going to cost billions of dollars to the state under some cockamamie theory of like losing Medicaid funding. The state auditor, who is a Republican and is an anti-choice Republican, but is a guy who like I kind of like in the sense like human to human wouldn't vote for him, but I like him. He believes in doing his job. He got in an argument with the attorney general because he was like, hey, I'm as uh, he said, pro-life. I say anti-choice. He's like, I'm as against abortion as you are. But like, I got to do my job. And my job means that I can't honestly tell the voters that this is going to cost billions of dollars when it's going to cost zero dollars to the state. So then there was a big court fight between these two Republicans that the auditor won. But the entire thing is slowing the process down and making it harder and harder for the uh, you know pro-abortion rights group to actually be able to get on the ballot. So they are trying all sorts of different things to keep the votes from actually happening all around the country because it doesn't matter how red the state is, people want to have access to abortion. Yeah, wow, that what a what a what a t- what a tale in Missouri. I mean, mm-hmm. when was your sense that if it that the the people of Missouri even though they've been going Republican in statewide offices would be would codify abortion? 
Yeah, I do think so. In fact, one of the ways you can tell is the folks who are trying to get this initiative on the ballot, who obviously have polling, they haven't, they haven't they're not using particularly limited language, right? They're not like, you know, the right in, in very limited circumstances. It's like they're trying to codify the right to reproductive choice all out in the state constitution, which they would not do if they weren't very confident that it would pass. And this goes back to the conversation you and I have had before, which is that there are millions upon millions of people in America who, when they fill out a survey or when they answer a poll over the phone and they are asked to classify themselves as pro-life or pro-choice, who classify themselves as pro-life. But then when you get into the details, into the nitty-gritty details of it, none of these people would receive, if they were to run for office, with the positions they actually hold, would receive an endorsement from national right, so-called right-to-life organizations because they actually believe in their being uh, access to abortion in a lot of different circumstances. And even in the cases where they don't, uh, I think that they have the comfort of knowing that, oh, well, there's no national ban. And, you know, like in Missouri, they're like, I could go next door to Illinois, I could go next door to Kansas. And when it, when it comes down to actually making it the law and making it that much harder for their daughters or their wives or for themselves to be able to have access to abortion, and they're in that ballot box with nobody watching. I think that's why these keep these keep winning for the side of uh, of uh, reproductive rights. Yeah, and this is a reminder that the politics of abortion were great for the Republicans when it was mm -hmm. theoretical. Well, we're fighting. We're fighting against. Uh, they didn't have to own the consequences of right. what they were saying, and now they have to own the consequences of this. And the politics are really bad. And the more ballot initiatives th that we see. The harder election days are going to be for Republicans if those ballot initiatives coincide with general elections, right? because that drives turnout for Democrats and also puts people in the ballot box in a weird psychology. So if you're like Republican sympathetic or you happen to vote Republican more than Democrat, but you have a history of voting Democratic, it's a subtle reminder of the extremism of Republicans when you go into the ballot box. You'd be like, oh, yeah. Like, and, and actually, as an example for this, let's play a video, Jason. I want you to respond to this because it's important you say history is important. Like, what's the context? Well, we had one Republican figure after another going on television and on Twitter trying to convince the Ohio voters to give away their own power over direct democracy. Uh, let's go to Jim, Jim Jordan here in this clip. The left attacks our values every day. I see it and you see it. And they threaten Ohio's way of life. That's why we need to get out and vote yes on issue one. Voting yes will protect Ohio's values by making sure special interests can't buy their way into our state constitution. Raising the bar for constitutional amendments just makes sense. If you're a parent, a taxpayer, a gun owner, a farmer, heck, every hard worker in Ohio, please join me on August 8th. Vote yes to protect our constitution. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're like... Yes, it is Machiavellian, right? I guess. It's not even that. It's just manipulative. And a couple of things about this. One, uh, Jim Jordan pretty well phoned it in there, which I yeah. think is important, right? Like, first of all, his crew, like his team didn't even bother to get him a lapel mic, right? Like, it's very echoey in, in what he turns over to this group that has asked him for it. And, and he's like, he clearly hasn't practiced this stuff. He's just, that's like first or second take. He's reading it over. And I say this because when somebody who's as safe in their seat as Jim Jordan, right, and who, you know, presumably could be as far to the right on just about any issue he wants and retain his position is not leaning into this, it is indicative of what you're talking about, right? Which is that they yeah. don't 
this this issue does not work for them anymore at all. And you're right. It's not just like psychological that when they go into the ballot box, it's like it, it highlights the extremism of the Republicans. What happens when you have something on the ballot in an election when you're a candidate, it is it is where the term wedge issue came from, right? There was the Republicans did this masterfully in Missouri for years. They would put they would find ways to put Obamacare on the ballot when they had no jurisdiction whatsoever over it. They just got people to like vote on it, right? They put it on the ballot. Uh, it worked the other way when stem cell research was put on the ballot in 2006. It, it was a big part of why Claire McCaskill was able to unseat Jim Talent because what happens is when it is in the news every day because it's going to be on the ballot, it becomes a major issue in the can in the campaigns between the candidates as well. And then when they have the debates, when the, everything else, they have to talk about the issue that all the voters are going to vote on. So when it's going to be on the ballot, it takes something like abortion that is already a central issue in these campaigns, and it makes it the central issue of the campaigns. And that is not what the Republicans want right now. Mm. Well, one other additional messaging point here is let's look at this tweet from J.D. Vance, your buddy. Uh, talk about yeah, somebody yeah. who's phoning it in. So he basically, this is an interesting move here. He 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 was replying to a tweet from Nancy Pelosi talking about voting no. And Vance, and I'll read this for our audio audience, says, uh, he tweets, we're actually trying to make it harder for out-of-state special interests to rewrite the Ohio Constitution. Vote yes on one today to tell Nancy Pelosi to mind her own business, end quote. So this is his framing. Now, nowhere is it mentioned that uh, actually what we're what you're doing if you vote no is actually you're allowing the voters themselves, <laughs> right? It's like, mm -hmm. it's like this is my point, though, is like this is what he could be troubled to do because. J.D. Vance, even more than Jim Jordan, J.D. Vance has to run statewide again at some point, right? And, and J.D. Vance understands that this is not a good issue for him, right? And, and so I guarantee you that both with Jim Jordan and J.D. Vance, that the, the group that was pushing this ballot initiative and trying to get to yes, that they got less than 15% of what they asked those two to do, right? They probably had a panoply right. of stuff for those two major statewide personalities to engage. And what they got from J.D. Vance was him like clapping back at Nancy Pelosi, basically just trying to turn it into an anti-Pelosi thing so that it wouldn't be seen as uh, an anti-abortion rights thing. And, and I think that is extremely telling. Yeah. All right. Well, obviously, we'll keep an eye on Arizona. Uh, and any folks out there, um, Tweet at us uh, if there's movement happening in your states that isn't getting a lot of attention for ballot initiatives, uh, if there are other states involved out there. We know we got folks from pretty much every state in the country out there. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, January 6th, do a little bit of update here. Uh, so it seems like the grand jury that indicted Trump uh, was uh, spotted meeting in a federal courthouse earlier this week, Jason, and uh, they talked to Bernie Carrick. Um, by the way, New York, you know, my, my city of New York just continues to produce a bunch of just truly A-class um, political arsonists here. I, I just had forgotten about the whole saga of Bernie Carrick, who is in charge of our police force, by the way. Um, so, so much of these grand jury things is like, it's like, let's play the, the, the not so much hits. It's like, let's bring back the people from the, because Trump, you know, recycled so many of these people and brought them in that that's, that's what these things remind me of. Well, it, they asked him interestingly, apparently about the Save America PAC and their fundraising all between election day and January 6th. And this is according to Carrick's lawyer. 
because uh, remember, like usually grand jury proceedings are supposed to be mm-hmm. confidential, so it's up to them whether they want to talk about it. I don't know why <laughs> his lawyer just thinks it's in his interest <laughs> to mention that. And so I have a whole separate question, Jason. I think like I think I should go back and I should go into law. I should use my law degree because it seems like <laughs> God, there's just some, there's just some truly truly buffoonish type of figures and making a lot of money in the law right now well that's the question is how much money are they making like i don't think that the people who are well i guess actually now that as we've covered trump is spending so much of his uh you know intake of fundraising on i guess they are making a lot of money but maybe the best the best people don't go to work for him they're not sending their best i'm not sure but anyway yeah yeah i mean but this gets to the superseding indictment point you made last week, which is a lot of people, you know, I've debated some folks about this and they're like, well, there, here's what wasn't in there that we were expecting. I'm like, well, I wouldn't talk so fast. Like, the, you know, mm-hmm. Jack Smith has made it clear that he'll hold on to information and, you know, dot his I's, cross his T's. And I think my sense of the indictment that we saw in D.C. last week was a opening salvo. He went with what he had ready and then he's going to keep going. And I think he found it in his interest to get the docket moving in that case and that we're going to see a lot more. And this grand jury testimony is evidence of that. The existence of a grand jury period reviewing any evidence on Trump should should raise eyebrows in Trump's camp, especially if they start asking about this PAC. Because one of the things that the PAC activity has that's very useful to the Department of Justice and Jack Smith is money in, money out. That kind of stuff is really easy to prove, mm-hmm. right? As we know from the Hunter Biden stuff, because every allegation about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden that involves these bribes, like, have never been proven. They could, I could prove it today, right? Like, if if, yeah. if Joe Biden got money from the Chinese in a bribe, we could prove it overnight. We would know about it, right? Yeah, and look, the chances that uh, as millions and millions of dollars have flowed have flowed into a, a Trump pack to pay for lawyers and then flowed out have not have been one fully accounted for in all the proper ways and not been used for something illegal is about zero. Right. I mean, just, just because that's clearly how the, I mean, this, this is the same dude who was like, just let's just shred the documents. I mean, like he's like, like, you know, like if you go back and you watch eighties movies, about uh, 80s and 90s movies about like corruption. It was always the most straightforward plain corruption because they didn't have the technology to like do the forensic analysis. So it was always like a room full of dudes just shredding yeah. stuff. Yeah. And, you, and, and when you look back now, you're like, come on, is that yeah. really how they did it? And the answer is yes, back then they did. Well, Trump like never updated his corruption yeah. strategy. Like it's just the same old stuff. He's still living in the 80s. Yeah, the 80s, apparently a wonderful decade. But okay, uh, Trump also attacked uh, Jack Smith and um, the judge in the case, Chutkin. Um, He he truthed, quote, uh, deranged Jack Smith is going before his number one draft pick, the judge of his dreams, who must be recused an attempt to take away my First Amendment rights. There's a lot of all caps here, which I'm not, I'm not good enough of a reader to, to truly do it justice. Um, this despite the fact that he, the DOJ, and as many thug prosecutors are illegally leaking everything and anything to the fake news media. All right. Ironic, given what I just read about Bernie Carrick's lawyer um, right. leaking information. But what is he worried about? What, are you following? What, what is Trump worried about getting leaked right now? Well, the, the leak, I think, is just... I think he's just referring to any public uh, reporting on like what we just talked about, about the grand jury, which again, you're right, ironic, because it's coming from lawyers of one of 
you know, his co-conspirators in this deal, um, whether alleged yet or not, um, and with somebody on his side anyway. Um, and also like every time that there's going to be an indictment, we find out about it because Trump lets everybody know ahead of time. He's right. very yeah. dedicated yes. to scooping <laughs> Jack Smith on his own legal, uh, you know, tribulations. So, um, the, and then the, the gag order is just because like any, in, in any criminal case, whether it's something like this or not, um, if there's a lot of public pronouncements and a lot of opining by either party uh, about a case ahead of time, a judge will sometimes step in and say, hey, you're not allowed to speak publicly about this because we're trying to find, we're going to end up trying to find uh, an unbiased jury pool. And if a bunch of argument about the case has already happened in the press in a way that they can't avoid, then it's going to prejudice the jury pool either for or against, and and it becomes, Vordier becomes very problematic. I mean, that's that's pretty simple and straightforward. It just happens to be that Trump is the front runner for the Republican nomination for president and a former president of the United States. And as a result, like he has not only the motivation and the ability, but clearly the express intent of trying to bias juries and bias judges and intimidate judges and juries and prosecutors. And so there is talk of whether or not there's going to be a gag order. Um, but then the question is, can they can they actually enforce it, right? Can you keep Donald Trump, who's actively running for president, from talking about the specifics of this case? And, you know, I, I don't know what your opinion is. Mine is, is like, it's highly unlikely that a judge is going to uh, jail him for it, which is a, a possible remedy under a gag order. But I would think it, you know, if you if you uh, uh, sanction him and you fine him, that seems like it'd be pretty persuasive to Trump, who's pretty cheap and doesn't have as much of his own money as he pretends to have. Um, so I, I think that may actually happen. Yeah, I don't, I honestly don't know, because this is a, a, an example of Trump relying on the fact that what he's doing is unprecedented as a way to protect himself, mm -hmm. right? Which is, he knows that it would be unprecedented to lock up a presidential candidate in the middle of an election. So he steamrolls through the norms and rules that would get any one of us in jail. Like if we're being honest, like if this were any one of us, we'd be in prison right now uh, right. for breaking these rules. So he's relying on that norm and the, putting the judge in a very difficult position, which is yeah. like, it will look weird to the average person and the polling on this isn't as great as we'd want it to be right now at this early stage. So CBS did a poll with YouGov uh, and more than half of Americans think the charges against Trump are aimed at hurting his 2024 campaign, though also a solid majority also thinks that the charges are about upholding the rule of law and defending democracy. I'm not exactly sure how to reconcile those two things. I, I think that's you know? fascinating. I, I think I, I was thinking about it and I'm going to attempt to reconcile it, um, which is that I think that what you have there are some of the people responding to the poll who are making a distinction on motivation for the charges, not uh, credibility of the charges. So you have the majority of people saying these charges are based on the rule of law and they believe that the charges are legit, but you also have the majority saying that they think it is aimed at hurting Trump politically, which means basically of the ones who are majority who think it's aimed at hurting Trump politically, you probably have the whatever 40 some percent uh, who think that the charges aren't legit. And then you need like 10 or 15% of the people who are saying the charges are legit to say that they think that they are politically oriented. And I think that those are people who are like, yeah, I think he broke the law. Yeah, I think that these charges are legit. But I think that they are bringing the charges because they're against him politically. 
mm-hmm. which I guess is the same as saying I don't think they would bring. I don't think that they would actually try to enforce this or try to prosecute him if he wasn't running again or something like that. Mm. Um, which it's very yeah. hard to see their logic, but I think if you're going to try, that's how you would do it. Well, one of the things they've been doing, and unfortunately, pretty effectively, if you watch certain like major major platforms like Rogan, where Rogan said he, you know, he's recently said that he thinks the Bidens are more corrupt than the Trumps, which is insane and shows that he's been he's been gotten to. Yeah. Uh, but he, Trump, and his people keep deflecting to Hunter Biden, and Trump did it in I think a particularly egregious way uh, this week. Let's go to the clip. Died me. He's right. Great balls. But so they end up. So when they want to keep something, they say, oh, man, they got Hunter again. You know, at some point, Joe is going to have to say, you know, the sun thing just isn't working out. Do you agree? The sun thing. The sun thing's not working out too good. It, all he had to do is pick up the laptop. Didn't the guy call him like 11? Pick up your laptop. Pick up your laptop. I, I wonder where that cocaine came from. What happened? That was the quickest investigation I've ever seen. Uh, all right. So you have just done an entire podcast on the branch where oh, you yeah. debated uh, this issue. I, never, I rarely talk about the branch, uh, the lost debate show on here, because <laughs> when people go from this to that, they hear me yeah. debating a conservative often, and uh, you have to have a certain disposition to want to listen to that kind of stuff. But I debated my co-host, Ricky Schlott, who's a Fox News contributor and New York Post commentator. Um, and veteran of of a lot of conservative outlets, including the Daily Wire. Uh, you know, the whole thing of the show is we debate a lot of things in good faith. And sometimes it's a debate and sometimes it's just a discussion. Yesterday was a debate. We debated mm-hmm. Hunter Biden, and, and this is our Tuesday episode for people listening. And I spent a while getting to the bottom of Hunter Biden because she had requested it. And, you know, I, you know, it, it, I feel like it's important to debate and discuss this issue that's that's really making waves in the right-wing media and people should go out there and listen to it the lost debate wherever you get your podcasts uh it you'll you'll hear a certain kind of energy from me i don't know if you had a chance to listen to it but it, it, there's a lot going on with the hunter biden stuff and it is a game of whack-a-mole like one mm-hmm. theory after another being lobbed out and you've got to research it and sometimes you have to prove a negative like that biden didn't know something or there's a whistleblower that comes out, and then there's a whistleblower who's a Chinese spy. Then they disappear. Then there's a new whistleblower. And then what they say is e- easily falsifiable. And then there's another. And it's just like keeps going, keeps going, keeps going, keep, keeps going. And honestly, I had to take a nap after the podcast yesterday. It was <laughs> it was so, it, it was a lot. Um, but so, I, I think I've had enough of it. Well, from that experience, you know, given that the point of this show is to equip people with the ability to have these conversations, and probably Hunter Biden is coming up in these conversations with people in everybody's daily lives what's your takeaway from it on like what is the best way for people to respond to that like the idea that well you know biden is very corrupt too because of his son there's there's different levels of it right it depends who you're talking to my favorite argument which might not be the most effective argument is you know i said to ricky i was like you know there there has been one president who's been credibly accused of a crime in the in the Hunter Biden saga and it's actually Donald Trump who was impeached <laughs> over trying to pressure the Ukrainian government to go after uh, Joe Biden and he was not only impeached but he got the votes of Bill Cassidy and um what's his name in Pennsylvania 
and Susan uh, Collins and yeah mm-hmm. and Murkowski. I mean, you go down the list. Richard Burr voted for that. I had forgotten about that. So it's like, mm-hmm. and they're like, okay, that is the one person who actually the one president that we know in this whole Hunter Biden saga who committed a crime. That's my favorite argument. I would say my mm-hmm. um, most effective argument. I would say is uh, the at least pointing out the because it was these moves that people make like. I'm just, I just want to hear, I just have questions. And then I just kept being, well, let's just keep asking questions. Like, let's do it for 10 years. Like, let's just keep asking questions. We'll keep answering them. And then we'll spend a trillion dollars on it. And you can kind of just frustrate people that way. And I think the third is trying to be like, look, like, like I, for instance, I was a skeptic of some of the brag stuff. And I'll be like, you know, and, and in this case with Ricky on the podcast and for my conservative listeners, I'll be like, one of the things you respected about me was that I was critical of some aspects of the Bragg investigation. And although I don't think this is the same, this is a moment where I need you to hear me out and say, I think you're out for blood and this is nonsense. So maybe this mm-hmm. is your moment to show courage. And the third one I think might be the most effective, but I'm not sure. Well, I, I haven't listened to the whole pod yet. Um, you sent me the link, but I, 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 have, I watched one of the clips uh, on social where you and she are talking back and forth um, about, you know, she brings up Hunter's behavior, I guess, in calling his dad and putting his dad on speakerphone when he had some, you know, big wigs from some, you know, corporate group around or whatever. And she's trying to sort of put that at Biden's feet as like he at the, President Biden's feet that he he must be corrupt because he, you know, was doing this. And like, for me, what I was thinking is, is like, if somebody brought that up to me, I'd be like, well, look, uh, Hunter Biden clearly has some struggles. He's been pretty open yeah. about that. And like a lot of people who have had a substance problem, it is probably led, I would concede, it is probably led to some attempts at some other unsavory and potentially illegal behavior. And he's yeah. being investigated for that. But what it, But to say that when his father, who is understandably very concerned about him because he has struggled with substance use and that kind of thing, and because he struggled generally, that by picking up his phone call, that that is somehow corruption, it, that just doesn't ring true to me. Because like, you know, my kid's not old enough to have a phone, but one day when he does, I'm going to step out of any meeting to pick up his phone call. And if he is right. going through something in his life, then I'm 100% going to step out of any meeting to pick up his phone call. Right. And, yeah. and so that that's what I there's would another, add. Like, there's another element of this, which is like, the, when they connect the dots on this stuff, it's like, you know, Hunter Biden allegedly did this illegal thing, which by the way, the only things that he's been charged with are the tax crime and the gun. So there's all this like mm-hmm. Burisma, China stuff and all that, a whole other story, right? He has not, there's been no crimes yet, alleged, but at best, what I've seen is they're going to maybe get Hunter Biden on more crimes. There's nothing that gives us to 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 Joe Biden, but they'll be like, and Hunter Biden was at Joe Biden's house the day X happened. And I'm like, yeah, that's his son. Like, (laughs) you know, like one of the things is like, oh, there's a picture of him in a classic car with some beautiful women in Joe Biden's driveway. I'm like, so what is, what's the, what's the story here? He drives over with a bunch of random women he's dating, conspires to take a bribe from the Chinese with them. (laughs) And we don't have those witnesses somehow. You know, I don't know. It's like all the stories are crazy. Never mind the most important part of this whole thing, which is to believe the conspiracy, you'd have to believe that 
Weiss, a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney, is somehow in on this. And at no point has this been explained to anybody, like that somehow why, what Weiss's game here is. It's a really long game he's been playing. Well, and I think one of the things you pointed out in uh, in the clip that I saw is that like you can't have it both ways, Republicans. You can't claim that Biden is senile and completely incapable of doing the job, and yet at the same time is like quarterbacking major conspiracies and no one seems to be able to get the real evidence because he's so good at it. Right. Um, and, right. and when you pointed that out uh, and then you said, well, you know, so he picked up the phone. He didn't know who was going to be on the other end of the phone other than his son. Then she comes back and she's like, well, see, that proves that he may be senile. And so like they've got us in this thing where like when you defend yes, his capacity, it's, it's, oh, he's ending. corrupt. When you ending. defend his ethics, he's senile. Yeah. And, and well, those so, are the only two options. Well, I give right. a third option, which is she asked me point blank. Do you think he's being manipulated by her son? I'm like, Yes. Like, of course he is. And I think the, the son is is a drug addict, so manipulation is complicated here. But of course he's, it, manipulation in, in, the, in the sense that his son is taking advantage of the relationship. Clearly, mm -hmm. he's a very troubled guy. Like, yeah, you want to say taking advantage of? Sure. Like, and I, it's, by the way, it's hard to find any drug addict or anybody dealing with any major crisis like that, who is not in control of their faculties, who doesn't lean on their parents and take advantage of those relationships. That's what it means to be a parent. You know, you answer right. that phone, you know, noted parenting exactly. expert, Robbie Gupta will give you that information. Um, well, I mean, that, all you have to do is have a parent to know that that's right. the case, you know, like, yeah. um, so. Well, it's anyway. not a good example of my case, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it I'm is. Sure my dad's picking up the phone. But uh, uh, your, your mom would. Your mom would. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And I uh, would right. vote for your mom for president before I'd vote for your dad for president. So uh, it, it's a fair example. Actually, but, I did get in trouble once at the, with the law when I was a kid, and my dad did not pick up the phone. So I, I will not forget that. But okay, uh, we, we have a story we, for another podcast. Yeah, story for another podcast. We have a lot more on this Trump stuff. We got a lot of clips to go through. Uh, we're also going to check in on 2024 campaign and just a lot of creepy DeSantis stuff going on. And then we're going to take a step back and get a little highbrow and look at some data just about where the American people are going right now. And some of the news is not really good. We'll get to that, uh, that and more when we come back. Our next partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutritional supplement that supports whole body health. If you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, you know I've been taking AG1 for years, even before they were a sponsor of this podcast. Jason does too. And I started taking AG1 in particular because uh, I see these people with all these like hands full of pills who want to like live forever and be as active as possible. And what I love about AG1 is it's that daily nutritional insurance. It has your vitamins, minerals, probiotics, et cetera, that uh, allow you to improve your gut health, get you the adaptogens that you need. And also, I take it instead of coffee first thing in the morning, so it also helps me hydrate. I put a little bit of lemon in there. It tastes amazing. And if I'm having a particularly active day, I take it twice. So if you're looking for a simpler, effective investment for your health, try AG1 and get five free travel packs and one free year supply or a free one year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase, go to drinkag1.com slash majority. That's drinkag1.com slash majority and check it out. There's been uh, a lot of Trump happening out there in, in the media these days. And he's, you know, as we've, as we've covered and the gag order uh, is, you know, I think that this looming gag order, order is a reflection of him leaning into his public persona. Um, he is very comfortable talking about the indictment. Uh, 
and, and so let's, uh, and I'm not sure this is a good legal strategy, but certainly he's, he's got his eyes fixed on this Republican primary. Um, let's, let's go to Trump talking about this indictment. And in the morning consult that just came out, I wanted to see, because, you know, every time you get indicted, I like to check the polls, because <laughs> one more indictment that I think this election's over. One more. No, it's horrible. You get indicted for nothing. Can you imagine a guy? Let's indict my opponent. This, uh, this is a sick, this is a third, this becomes a third world country. What's going on there? Uh, mm. One thing I'd like to point out is that apparently Trump is making the same stupid joke the rest of us are about, you know, he's one indictment away from sewing things up, at least the Republican nomination, because he does seem, his poll numbers do seem to improve whenever he gets indicted. I still don't really know what that's about. Um, yeah. and, and apparently neither does he, <laughs> like, yeah. cause he's making that joke. Yeah. I, I said to somebody yesterday that if I were Biden's team, we were talking about Bidenomics. I, I was saying that if I were Biden's team, I would ditch all the complexity of messaging and say, have as his main message, uh, that he's boringly, predictably competent. Uh, and basically that be his message, like some radical, boring competence and basically aim his message squarely at the people who are looking around and who are like, all right, I'm on this flight. Do I want to know where I'm going? And even though, <laughs> you know, I'm going to, you know, pick a boring city that doesn't offend anybody, I don't know, Stockholm or something like I'm going to Stockholm, uh, and you know, it's not, you know, Monte Carlo or whatever, but I know I'm going to get there. Uh, and I just want to know we land the plane. Um, and then uh, you've got this other pilot who, yeah, it, like things could get crazy. We could wind up in Moscow. We could wind up in Somalia. You know, we could be in Rio, but we also may not land this plane. It, yeah, it's more exciting, but it's highly, highly risky. Uh, and by the way, you've been on a flight with this pilot before and he crashed you into the Hudson um, and got everybody sick. Like, yeah, I might not be the most exciting person in the world. I might not get you exactly to the destination that you want, but you know we're going to land the plane. That would be my Biden message, you know? I, I agree with you. I would save that message for starting in, say, September of next year. Yeah. And here's why. Yeah. Because if you, think about, if you think about the reaction of public opinion toward Biden after the evacuation of Afghanistan, mm. a lot of that was based on he had really effectively, and I think credibly, sold the idea of I'm going to be competent and, and you're not going to have to think about me all the time, right? And so then it was what, only eight months or so after he was, was yeah, it was only like eight months after he took office, seven months after he took office, that uh, the evacuation happened and it didn't, it didn't go well, uh, that it, they had, it, it, had, it had placed so much of the public perception of Biden in the competence basket, that when when something happened that they weren't able to manage well, uh, it it shattered a huge part of what they were you know basing their argument on. So I agree with you, but I would save it until you don't have much time for events beyond your control. Right? I think about like for Obama at one point it was God, what was the what was what did what, how do we refer to the underwater leak? Uh, was it the, the deep water horizon? Yeah. Yeah. Deep water horizon. And it was like, I mean, to think about how helpless that must have felt in the Obama white house, that it was like, there's a, a, it wasn't even like a U.S. 
government uh, property. It was a it was a private uh, it was a private um, you know uh, 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 what do you call it D- mining digging whatever the heck you call it for oil offshore rig yeah yeah um, so offshore offshore drilling uh, rig that and then it became like Obama's job to plug a hole at the bottom of the right. ocean and it was crushing his so you never know when you're you president know. of the United yeah, States right. what the intervening event is going to be so I totally agree with you but I would st- keep focusing on the economy the economy the economy uh, because weirdly you have a greater degree of control over that a, a thing that generally you have very little control over <laughs> yeah uh, than than you do over intervening events that affect the perception of your competence yeah and, and, and although the economy could turn on a dime there's usually an indication that there were in a very risky period. Right. Like 2008 was a good example where there was a lot of, there, there, there was a lot of turbulence leading up to that crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, COVID obviously different, like that kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, well, Trump's lawyer, who apparently is a seasoned trial attorney who represented the referees in that NBA scandal apparently and was in that documentary, he also made the rounds this weekend. Uh, let's go to a clip of him. You still going to pursue a change of venue? Absolutely. We, we would like a diverse venue, a diverse jury. Um, Do you have any that, expectation uh, that, that will be granted? The, that reflects the, 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 the characteristics of the American people. Um, it's up to the judge. I think West Virginia would be an excellent venue to try this case. Speaking Very of the judge. DC and a much more diverse. So, Jason, you are a trial attorney. I watched a bunch of the clips of this guy. I love to make fun of Trump's attorneys, but this guy's a real lawyer. Uh, uh-huh. This is not a great yeah. reflection of that, this clip, because it's kind of a, a definitely a doomed effort to get the, the venue changed, although you never know like what appeals can look like depending on what draw you get, et cetera. But um, my, my sense in looking at this guy on TV and hearing him make one argument after another is that he's got a tough hand, but he's not like a crackpot yeah. like a lot of the other people. No, he... Uh... He reminds me of the old uh, expression, um, when you don't have uh, the facts on your side, uh, what is it? When you don't have the facts on your side, just argue or whatever it is. And, and you know, it, it, I can't remember. It's like when you don't have this on your side, do this. When, when you don't have the facts on your side, argue the law. When you don't have the law on your side, uh, just argue. And and that's <laughs> where he's going to be, right? Is he's just got to come up with something. So here it's like, well, you know, uh, just as I'm trying to get this, Brett puts it in the chat. Thank you. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. Here, I'll get it right. If you have the facts on your side, pound the facts. If you have the law on your side, pound the law. If you have neither on your side, pound the table. And that is, that is, thank you, Brett. That is going to be where he ends up. Uh, because the idea of like, when you say not diverse, what you mean is DC is mostly black and you're going to get a mostly black jury. And when you say, let's go to West Virginia so they'd be more diverse, I don't, I mean, that just means instead of a mostly black jury, let's get a mostly white jury. Uh, so it's a little, uh, it's a liberal use of the term diverse, I would say, or uh, more than liberal. It is a, a bullshit use of the term diverse. But like I said, he's kind of got a pound on the table. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm looking at him saying like, this thing goes to trial. It'll be interesting because he's a real trial attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, tough. Yeah, tough I think, facts, do, do we have, there's, isn't there, there's one more clip, I think, of Trump's lawyer having to make an argument uh, as well. Do we have that? as well brett is the defense to this indictment he didn't do it uh or he was allowed to do what he did the defense is quite simple donald trump president trump believed in his heart of hearts that he had won that election and as any american citizen he had a right to speak out 
under the First Amendment. He had a right to petition governments around the country, state governments, based on his grievances that election irregularities had occurred. He had every right to speak about the important issues that were taking place after the election. Certainly, Mr. Pence, his vice president, agreed with him that there were anomalies and discrepancies in the election process. And Mr. Trump had every right to petition government and enforce his First Amendment rights. That's why this indictment is an attack on the First Amendment. The government, the Biden administration, would have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that President Trump did not believe that he had won the election. They will never be able to do that. And that's why this prosecution is so ill-conceived. So this, I think, is much better evidence that this guy's a good lawyer. I have no idea whether it's evidence of whether he's a good person, but look, he's doing his job as a lawyer. So that's not a judgment we get to make on him. But I, I like, I, I wanted to, us to play this clip because look, I'm not sure that that argument's going to work in court because at the end of the day, as a lot of people have pointed out, when you broke the law, whether you intended to break the law or not is usually irrelevant. Like, I saw somebody somebody made the joke of like a defendant being like, look, I really believed that that was my money I was taking out of that bank, you know, is not an actual, you know, <laughs> when you rob a bank, that's not an actual claim to innocence. But I wanted us to listen to that clip because I think that is going to be the public argument politically for, for sure. Trump in this election, right? Which is that, look, regardless of whether he was convicted, regardless of, of what you think about whether he broke the law. He believed he won the election and he has a right to go out and do it. Now, now, the logical extension of that that you have to take people to to prove them how ridiculous it is is, so does that mean he had a right to abuse his power and try and overthrow the government in order to stay in office? The answer to that is no, but you have to be ready with that response because that's they're trying to breeze past that. Yeah, it's like if if I thought my neighbor stole my laptop, I don't have a right to break into their apartment. And to take the metaphor further, let's pretend I broke into the apartment and they actually didn't steal the laptop. That would be even worse. Even if the laptop was there, yeah. I still broke under the law and I'll go to prison for that. But it's especially bad in the eyes of the law uh, and, and you know in the discretion of the judge and jury if I go there and actually turns out I misplaced my laptop. Or I didn't even have a laptop to begin with. In this case of Trump, yeah, it's you know? this is more like this is more like he's like uh, I used to own a laptop and now I don't. <laughs> so I'm gonna get a bunch of people who work for me together and we're gonna go break into my neighbor's house and take his laptop because I used to own a laptop and I don't. You're not even claiming it's yours. You're right. just like let's all go in and take his because I used to have one and now I don't. Right. I mean, is is really more where we are? Um, all right, and then there's the Trump version of all this which is this chant that he got the crowd to do. Let's play that. Uh, they don't want me to speak about a rigged election. They don't want me to speak about it. Whereas that's, I have freedom of speech, First Amendment. How can my corrupt political opponent, crooked Joe Biden, put me on trial during an election campaign that I'm winning by a lot, but forcing me nevertheless to spend time and money away from the campaign trail in order to fight bogus, made-up accusations and charges. That's what they're doing. I'm sorry, I won't be able to go to Iowa today. I won't be able to go to New Hampshire today because I'm sitting in a courtroom on bullshit because his attorney general charged me with something. Terrible.
Thank you very much. Yeah, it is. It's a, think of it. So that's the Trump version of that very same argument, which I, I think it should be noted that at least half of that was him working off a teleprompter. So that was his prepared version of that. Um, and, and I just wanted to play that because I think that's what that's what you're going to be arguing about uh, at the dinner table with conservative family members and that kind of thing is, is a statement like that. But I think it goes back to what we just talked about before, which is that, you know, he may have convinced himself that he was screwed over in the election, but that doesn't mean he has the right to overthrow the government. Like, that's yeah, just not how it works. So there's the legal argument, which I think is is suspect on that front. And then there's the the public argument, which the vast majority of Americans you know, don't believe the election was stolen. So if you take that as a given, obviously there's a big part of his base that does. The Then you need to say, well, okay, take the lot of it for a second. So you're saying that he believed this thing, like that was clearly, clearly false uh, and acted upon it for as long as he did. And, and it being like such an important thing, like whether he won or lost the election, that's pretty damning that he believed this thing and ignored every expert around him for that long. I actually think in some ways it's worse for him to have believed it for as long as he did than for him to have been a liar about it. You know, at least if he's a liar, he's still got his faculties about him. If he truly believes it, he's just a demented old man. And especially now that unlike before when the big lie had was really pervasive throughout the Republican Party, it had really become like a litmus test. You weren't allowed to run for very many offices as a Republican for quite a while without buying into it. And now, if you look, the vast majority of the Republican candidates for president of the United States are saying Donald Trump lost the election and there, were, and there was not fraud. So he's yeah. now more and more on an island, which is why his lawyers and his supporters are no longer in a position to be, and this is a good thing, are no longer in a position to make the argument of the election was stolen. Now they have to make the argument of, you, well, he really believed the election was stolen. Even DeSantis finally broke down and admitted that Trump lost. And it was a hilarious back and forth because he was like, he was doing that thing where he retreated to generalities. And he was like, look, mm -hmm. the person who puts their hand on the Bible at the end of the day and swears the oath of office is the, is the winner of the election. And so the reporter is like, well, are you saying he lost the election then? That Joe Biden's the winner? And then it was like this circular. And then finally he had to break down and be like, yeah, he lost. <laughs> it's just like, he just wouldn't, he wouldn't say it directly. And I'm like, who's the constituency for this? Like, exactly. You like know? you're, you're running against the guy in the primary. Do you, do you really want, is it that hard to say he didn't win the last election? Like that's one of your major points against the dude. It's is like, that dude, he we're lost texting the last this morning. Election. You know, it's like I had a busy contract negotiation this morning. And it would be like if you texted me and you're like, Robbie, I just want to know if you're going to be on the pod today. And I'd be like, look, uh, like the person who gets on that mic next to you, that person's on that's the pod. That's like, Look, man, like, like, are you going to be on? And he'd be like, you know, I get on every day, every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern time. <laughs> And I get on that mic and I do that every Wednesday. I'd be like, Robbie, are you going to be on the podcast? I don't have time for this. <laughs> That's it would be like communicating with Ron DeSantis. Now, speaking of DeSantis, uh, he replaced his campaign manager. Uh, so more turbulence in his campaign. Now, I'm not sure how this is going to come across in audio, but for you video listeners, this was among the creepiest things I've seen from DeSantis. This is him, I, I presume, in Iowa being asked about his chances. Let's go to the clip. Today, your poll numbers behind President Trump have been pretty substantially behind. And you Not here. <laughs> <laughs> Just do that one more time, Brett. 
today, your poll numbers behind President Trump have been pretty substantially behind. And you not here. <laughs> <laughs> Jason, I don't know what to say about that. That's so I think creepy. he said, I think, he, first of all, he did a weird wiping of his face thing, but whatever. He looks sweaty, nervous, and agitated. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, look, running for president, uh, the, what little I've done of it, it's super taxing and hard. Um, and if all anybody wanted to talk about was how you're losing and you're supposed to be better than you are. Like, I think it would just suck. I think like every day would yeah. just be such a grind. You look like he's um, a minute away from breaking down in tears. Like, right. That's what yeah. Like. And you yeah. would be because you'd be like, what, what am I doing? Like, why, why is this happening? And I'm losing to this chucklehead, you know, like it'd be terrible. Right. And, uh, and then I think what he says there is not in here. Right. Because I think he was like, yeah, at, he, means he must Iowa. have been at a DeSantis event. I think he, he meant Iowa. He meant or, Iowa? I think he meant Iowa. Because yeah. he said not here, and that's not true about Iowa. He's trailing in yeah. Iowa as well. So yeah, I think it must though, be that he had, than he had places. Yeah. Okay, yeah. but he, I, I think he had just concluded an event, and he had yeah. supportive people around him, which is why there was applause when he said not in here. But then he's got that really uh, awkward, like. Uh, sort of like I'm really excited to be at this lunch table, but I don't know if I'll get to sit here tomorrow. Laugh, um, and uh, it is it is off putting. Um, yeah, he's just kind he's of a, a weird guy, odd dude. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Th that's the headline there. He's just kind of creepy. Yeah. Um, Other news: Pence, Pence qualified yeah. for the debate, uh, so that'll be interesting. Like normally, I think it's fun. You know, you can make fun of it. Oh yeah, big deal. But Pence is an interesting figure in this race, given that he's the star witness potentially in this January 6th trial and seems to be getting more comfortable talking about it by the day. And so that I think is interesting. Like he's finding his voice, I guess, in this campaign. Not that it's, I mean, he was shouted down in New Hampshire um, by hecklers uh, saying, don't you believe in the constitution, which is truly an ironic thing to shout at him uh, in the context. Yeah. Uh, but right. I do find that his 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 place in this campaign is interesting. Like uh, now that he's a witness, yeah. It's well. First of all, let's think about the journey that Mike Pence has been on for a moment over the course of his life. Right, like this is a guy who he did a, he did a little bit of time in Congress, and then you know ended up as the governor of Indiana. Somewhere in there, he was also, and I would encourage anybody who's who's never done this to to look it up. He was a talk radio conservative talk radio host at one point, and if you ever. If you ever like find those clips, there are some on YouTube, the clips of him as a talk radio host, it doesn't sound like the Mike Pence that we hear today. It's It sounds like, to me, what I expect is probably the real Mike Pence. And that is to say that it doesn't sound like a guy doing a really bad impersonation of Ronald Reagan, which is what I think Mike Pence is straining and struggling to do every waking moment of his life. And he's got this restrained, I'm the statesman here. You know, he, he's trying to do Reagan all the time. And that's not what he sounds like when he was like on the radio for hours at a time. So that's been his journey. And then like, you know, you got to be a pretty bad Republican governor of Indiana for everybody to be like, there's no way that guy gets reelected. And that's where he was headed. And if everybody remembers in 2016, when it was time to choose a running mate, nobody wanted to be Trump's running mate because everybody assumed he was going to get trounced in the election and nobody wanted that stink all over them. And so he had to go with Pence and Pence had to go with it because I think Pence figured, well, this is a good excuse for why I'm not running for reelection as governor of Indiana so that I don't have to go lose my reelect. I'll just go lose as the running mate for Trump because people do that all the time. People leave office to go become a running mate right. that, that doesn't get elected. And then he, and then he won. And so 
that's why like Pence finds himself in the situation where he never had a real strong Pence centric political base. And all he had was his affiliation with Trump, which is now really problematic. So I don't think he's going anywhere, but. It's the kiss of death being his vice president Trump's. I mean, I'm stating the obvious, like I would much rather be like a Bobby. Almost literally. It was. Almost yeah, literally. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because another, I mean, literally, <laughs> like, he'd rather be like Bobby Janelle, who's now writing like wonkish op-eds on the state of healthcare and stuff like that. It's just like find your niche, like get out of the spotlight yeah. to a certain extent and atone for your sins. It's like, like you got to think Pence looks back on his time as vice president and probably has mixed feelings about it. Uh, okay, I know we're running out of time here. I did want to talk about this Axios uh, released uh, uh, information about this poll that uh, shows that um, Americans are as divided as they've ever been or more divided. In, in 2003, there was an 11-point difference in the percentage of Republicans and Democrats who said immigration should be decreased. That gap is now 40 points, and they go through one issue after another. So global warming, um, Republicans have become less worried. Democrats have become much more worried. Uh, and they go through one issue after another, national security, Roe versus Wade, uh, the government's role in healthcare, and the two parties have gotten more and more divided in pretty stark and unprecedented ways. And I raise this because this is Majority 54, and our listeners live this every day. And what this poll seems to suggest is that even since we've started this podcast, the gap has gotten worse. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I don't think we're to blame, but apparently we're not having the, the intended effect. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is why. This is the thing that concerns me the most about the future of America, because at the end of the day, and I'm sometimes I say this and people think that I'm like, everybody needs to come to the middle. It's more like it's really hard to continue to have a country when people dislike each other so much. I used to say I feel like they don't know each other, but at this point it's becoming I don't know them and I don't and I don't like them. And and that that's why, you know, I can get on my hobby horse real quick about the need for some sort of mandatory service doesn't have to be military, but something in this country to force Americans to know each other again, because it is much easier to hate that which you don't see as human uh, and you don't, you don't see the humanity in it. And, and we really are at a point where um, I think it's worse on the right, no doubt that, you know, folks on the far right have completely dehumanized uh, anybody who's in the center or on the left. Um, but look, I mean, if we're being honest, they're, I spend enough time um, talking to people from the coast or traveling to the coast that when people talk to me about where I'm from, uh, you know, sometimes it is a very earnest just confusion. Like, why why are people voting this way? And that I understand and appreciate. Um, but when it is the 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 downright dislike and and hatred for people who have voted for Trump or who uh, are Republican, um, that worries me a lot because. Uh, you can't convince people to change their mind if they feel like you hate them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's, it's really hard to continue to have a functioning democracy when we don't feel like we have anything in common, any common, uh, any, any shared values as Americans, really. Yeah, and, and you know, unpopular opinion with some is that we're a pretty big tent coalition at this point mm-hmm. uh, against Trump and Trumpism. That includes some of the people who have views on the other side of those issues. So mm-hmm. that's true, uh, you know. And and this sort of the sort of core cohesion around this coalition is largely like a, a defense of the democracy itself or the republic, depending on how you characterize it. 
And you could have different opinions on things, whether it's abortion or healthcare and what's the appropriate size of government and global warming even, which I find it particularly like frustrating at times to talk to people who just don't believe it's real or whatever. But at the end of the day, um, we have to welcome as many people into the coalition as possible who are willing to stand up to uh, the, the Trumpists who want to steamroll the very democracy that makes it possible for us to come together and debate those issues. Because I think that's the thing that unites us all is that even if we disagree on some of these issues, we want to maintain the ability to hash it out and vote on uh, the candidates to reflect our values and then respect the results of those elections. And that is the one thing that unites us all. And then even if people aren't with us on that yet, even you just have to keep working. That's the spirit of this mm -hmm. podcast. You got to keep talking to people, even if they are frustratingly, obstinately, you know, crazily uh, fringe on some of these issues, especially if they're people close to you and your family, because you're the person who's most likely able to persuade them. Yeah, you know, you don't even have to think about it as trying to get Republicans, you know, to become Democrats. It's more like I, I like the, the John Heileman talks about it as there's two sides in America right now. There's there's just team democracy and not team democracy. And right. so I just think of it as trying to bring people around, regardless of what they believe on the issues to team democracy. But uh, we, we got a little time. Um, you know, I'll do a quick one for us. Uh, two things. One, I just had an awesome trip to Boston. I took True. We got to go to Fenway. True had an incredible experience we got to, because I got a buddy who works with the Royals. We got to go, the Royals were playing the Red Sox. We went down in the field. True got autographs from his favorite players. Uh, and it was I saw you guys rocking your Royals stuff is great in Fenway. As a Yankees fan, I love seeing that. People were very nice to us, you know. Um, that doesn't sound like Fenway to me. No, people were really nice uh, because, look, it's not like, I mean, if we were wearing Yankee stuff, which I would never do, yeah. they, uh, they wouldn't have been, I'm sure. But, uh, we thank you to to whoop whoop you know the fitness tracker uh invited me out to do the the podcast their their podcast and then like gave us their tickets to the game and like put us up and it was very cool but then the other thing i want to say is uh a week from yesterday so tuesday the 15th the paperback i'm putting it up on the oh, screen wow. for the viewers here the paperback version of invisible storm comes out um so you know it came out last year new york times bestseller if you didn't get the hardcover or even if you did um and you still want to read it um the paperback is out you can order it now so incredible that's book. mine incredible thank you book, everybody. thank you thank you yeah. uh, what's up what you know you do you what's what oh, do your i don't stuff? know what's going on in my world it's just been busy with work yeah i've got just, like really digging in uh you know i had gotten back from all this travel and i'm just been trying to plan out my next six months where that's going to take me from everywhere from India to Israel to Austin, Texas to Tennessee to California. Like I'm going to be all over the place over the course of the next six months. So it'll be fun. I didn't know you were going to Israel. Yeah, I'm going in. Uh, I didn't know Israel October. was in the plans. This would be my fourth time to Israel. Yeah. Been really? I didn't know you'd been Yeah, I've been much. in the we Middle East a lot. I've, I've been to Iraq too. I've been to Jordan. Been to UAE. When were yeah, you in Iraq? I went to Iraq in two thousand nine with Susan Rice. Yeah. Oh, you did. You went. You went for the. You went. Yeah, we went all over the place. We also went to the Erbil and Kurdish region and all that. Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. It's like my first, like my first and first experience in a in a war zone, and uh, Iraq was truly post apocalyptic at that time. And what was uh -huh. fascinating was how Erbil. And some of the Kurdish areas were truly like modern 
like car dealerships mm. and things like that. And Kurdish people were really awesome. Oh, one recommendation, by the way, for the audience. Um, I had long been told that there's this documentary about the talking heads called Stop Making Sense, which apparently was a very famous documentary in the 80s. And I had a chance this weekend to watch it. And I have to say, this is totally irrelevant to everything we're saying, but it was what was on my mind when I was saying the 80s were a wonderful time. This is like a documentary that's like a famous music documentary that's just like a full-on recording of a concert from the Talking Heads. And even if you don't know the Talking Heads or anything about them, I was like vaguely familiar with their music. It's a, quite a ride. Like basically they start off, it's like it goes from low to high entropy essentially. Like it starts off with the lead singer just kind of singing one song and every single song gets a little bit more <clears throat> involved and the set gets bigger and bigger and bigger hmm. as it goes on. To the point where at the end he's wearing an oversized suit, everybody's dancing weird. It's like truly amazing. <laughs> <clears throat> and it's like, I'm not breaking new ground. It's like apparently famously good. But for those of us who uh -huh. like are younger, uh, it's it's truly worth seeing. You could catch parts of it on YouTube, and then I think there's like some Amazon um plug-in that you can get a seven-day free trial just to see it, and then you can just cancel it, which is what I did. Oh, um, but it's terrible. worth seeing. You put it on your background, it's cool. All right, there you go. Okay, remember to subscribe to Majority 54 wherever you listen to audio podcasts. Just search Majority 54 and please leave a five-star review. Thank you to the Midas Mighty. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today.